Uh, we had an introduction to the book of Judges this time last week from Linda, which was wonderful. Just a little reminder then. So we're talking roughly three and a half thousand years ago, around about the time 1300, 1200 BC. It's between the time of uh, the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt. Remember that? When they're brought out of slavery by God's servant Moses, they're out of Egypt, but they've not got kings. It's not the season of kings and uh, the kingdom, and whether it's a united kingdom or divided northern and southern kingdoms. It's in between that bit. So not the kings, not Moses and coming out of Egypt, but in that sort of middle section there, there's a time where God raises up sort of tribal saviour-type leaders who comes to deliver God's people. Now, this is an unusual book. If you've read it through, if you've even read some of it, it's not your typical sort of Bible book that you might be familiar with, especially from Sunday school. Typical Sunday school is, hey, kids, look at Noah. Didn't he build a great ark? He trusted in the Lord. Now you trust in the Lord like that. Or Abraham, so faithful. He left his home country, went to live in tents. Be like Abraham, sort of thing. You can't do that so much with the book of Judges because it's a catalogue of errors, uh, really atrocious and simple human behaviour. But it does, in that sense, reveal to us lots of cool things, or lots of important things, I should say. What, what rejecting the Lord really does to people. How evil spirals down and down. How a whole group of people, a whole nation of people, can end up together doing great atrocities. That's the book of Judges from one angle. The other angle is to see it as an incredible demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness through all of that. You can also see it as the Bible's kind of quest for a savior is really getting underway. So you can think of the book of Judges much like uh, we're looking for a savior, for God's savior. Is it you? No. Is it you? Mm, no. Is it you? Oh, that was good, but no. Is it you? No. A bit like that. The quest for God's Messiah, the quest for God's savior begins, really gets underway with the book of Judges. So it shows us saviour-like characteristics, but in nearly every case, you look at it and go, ooh, nah. It's good, but nah, like that. So there's lots of ways to sort of come at the book of Judges, all very fascinating, all very relevant. I hope we'll see that. And we're getting on to the next section of the introduction that we had, which is chapter 3, verse 7. It's, um, it's, a, it's a great story. I've asked Angie to read it for us, so I'm going to get Angie up. Uh, it's chapter 3, verse 7, we're going to verse 30. Thanks, Angie. Come on up. Judges 3, verses 7 to 30, can be found on page 244 of the Church Bibles. 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Azarahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Kushnan Rishathim, king of Aram Naraim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them, so he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushnan Rishanem, king of Aaron, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehad, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehad had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to the right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehad presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehad then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehad reached for his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sunk in after the blade which came out of his back. Ehad did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed over it. Then Ehad went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehad got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sira. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. 
So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, well done. It's good. It's slightly humorous, isn't it? Also a bit X-rated and uh, a bit gross. But, you know, I always think, you know, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with those two friends, Cleopas and his wife, probably, he, remember, he goes through all of the scriptures, explaining to them exactly about how the Messiah must sort of live, be put on trial, die, be raised from the dead. So even the book of Judges and even the story of Ehud is going to be teaching us good things about the Lord. Right, let's look at the cycle. So just in the story of Othniel, that's the first judge that we see there in chapter three, Othniel, which means God's strength. Not a bad name, if anyone's after a baby name. Othniel, don't know how you shorten it. God's strength. And um, what you might like to see is, if you've got that handout on the left-hand side, number one, the little box there, the judge's cycle. You see this really clearly in this opening story of Othniel, because first of all, you get a rebellious people, God's angry, then he's handed over them to their enemies, the people cry out, they get salvation through the judge, in this case, Othniel, finally there's peace in the land. You see that here in this section. Now, let's just notice what's going on. So verse seven, the big problem here is that God's people have forgotten him. Forgotten the Lord, verse seven there. Now we know what that means, don't we? It's a bit, uh, forgetting and knowing in the Bible means slightly different things to the way we usually use them. Now most people know the knowing one because, uh, for example, in Genesis chapter four, verse one, right? Adam, I'll quote it, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So it wasn't that he just, oh, there you are. I know you're there. A little bit more intimate than that. That's what knowing can mean in the scriptures. Similarly, forgetting. It's not that you've kind of forgotten your cup of tea and it's still full on the side there. It's you don't don't really care anymore. So in the Psalms, one of the prayers in the Psalms, a very honest prayer to God goes like this. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? See what that prayer is? It's, Lord, you don't care. How comes you don't care about our affliction? So when we read that word, they forgot the Lord, you could kind of substitute with that They don't care. They've lost interest. And they're serving not just one other god, the Baal, or the Baals, but the Asherahs as well. So you can see that in verse 8. They're serving these other gods and mixing it in with the worship of the one true and living God 
in their midst. So they still have a tabernacle. The tabernacle is there, which is where their place of worship, right at the center of all God's people, at Shiloh as it is at this time. There they are, the the temple worship, or, or rather the tabernacle worship, still going, hasn't stopped. They haven't abandoned all of that and said, oh, we won't do that anymore. Still going, but they're sort of, well, we'll mix it in. Let's have a bit of the bales and a bit of the asherahs as well. Now, I've heard it, just to sort of ground this for us a little bit, I've heard it described like this. Imagine you've got three wishes, all right? So it's a genie in the lamp style of thing. Out comes the genie, and you are now presented with the opportunity for three wishes, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it's going to define you. Three wishes. The Lord's listening in and asking, as he's sort of listening to our response to that, am I all three? Is it like, number one, you, Lord. Number two, you, Lord. Number three, you, Lord. Or am I, am I one? Am I one of them? And if I'm one of them, are you actually more bothered about the other two, if we're honest? You're kind of putting me in there. You might even put me as number one because you think you should, but you're way more interested in number two and number three, whatever that is. That's what it is. That, in the book of Judges, in every case, and throughout humanity, all over the world, is the root cause, the deep problem of the human heart. That though we're living in God's world, he's given us everything, our life, our very breath, everything we have, every good gift is from the Lord. We're like, ooh, I could make him one. Could I squeeze in just these two other things as well? And the Lord's like, really? And particularly because here, of course, we're talking about God's covenant people. So it's not just that the Lord's like created this amazing world and given us life and, you know, these bodies and the gifts that he gives us, but he's also covenanted himself to these people. These are the Israelite people. The Lord said effectively, I'm going to marry you. I will be yours forever, you will be mine forever, and we will be together forever. And I will make good on that promise. I will make sure it happens. So he's covenanted himself with these people, and their sort of response is, "Mm, yeah, all right. The Lord's angry with that. And rightly so. You're in my house. It's like you're, you're in my house using all my stuff and you don't care. That's it. That's idolatry. Comes up all over the scriptures, comes up here. And the Lord, in in a sort of act of mercy, he shows his people that by handing them over to this foreign king of, uh, well, in the first case, um, the foreign king of Aram, isn't it? In order, it's a sort of a mercy that he's going, I'm going to hand you over just to show you what is going on. You won't see it. You can't see it. You don't perceive it in yourself. So I'm going to hand you over to this foreign king who's going to 
enslave you and subject you and make your life miserable. And then you might just see it. The beautiful thing, though, wonderful, wonderful thing. Just have a look at it. Don't miss this. So good. Verse 9. When they cried out to the Lord. See, that's on the screens. That's all the Lord wanted. When they cried out to God, then, great, I'll send a saviour. Along comes Othniel. There it is. That is what the Lord longs for. It's not, I'm going to put this 10-step plan into place, I'll sort my life out, and then hopefully, will you, can we make this right again? They simply cried out to the Lord. And he delivers them through uh, the Spirit of God who comes upon Othniel, son of Kenaz, and uh, they over, overthrow um, the king of Aram, and the land had peace. Now, the next one, though, it gets a little bit more interesting with Ehud. But the cycle starts again, so they have this peace. In fact, you can see the cycle over and over again on the back of your sheets. If you want to study it in some detail, you can see how things get worse and worse. Should we just look at that, actually? So if you just look across, so for example, this is all the judges, so you can see about halfway down, you get the judges, so you can see Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, etc. And then you get how it sort of, you know, the, what happens each cycle. So for example, can you notice, let's just have a look at um, the for a duration of their, their sort of rebellion. Can you see it gets broadly longer and longer? You know, eight years, 18 years, 20 years, and by the end of it, 40 years of rebellion. Um, you have a sort of temporary peace. So if you look at the duration of the judge's rule right at the very bottom, it's 40 years, 80 years. Then it sort of begins to decrease 40 years, six years, 25, 20 years. There's a decrease in the sort of lasting peace that the judge brings each time. The worship of foreign gods gets worse. The peace is lesser. You can look across that table and kind of see how these uh, cycles develop through the book. But anyway, here comes Ehud, and he's called a left-handed man. Now, here's what you need to know about him, right? There is some detail in the story here which just helps you understand Ehud a little bit better. It's important, this. First, he's left-handed, now, that could be a variety of things. It could be that, yes, he has a sort of a dominant left hand, like we understand, left-handedness. Or it could be that is actually his right arm isn't functional. Perhaps he doesn't even have one. It could be that he's left-handed by force. He's got no option like that. So it could be a range of meanings there. Could be just his left-hand dominant, uh, but it could be worse. He's sent with tribute. So anyone who's watched Hunger Games know what a tribute is. He's Brit, but it's not a human tribute. It's probably food or clothing, something that this king, uh, Eglon, has demanded. And Ehud is the guy whom the Israelites have gone, you send it. This is what you're good for, a sort of present bearer. So in that sense, you can see the people are like, oh, you're not really a military commander. You're not a kind of commander-in-chief here. 
But i tell you what you can do. Why don't you take a present to this King Eglon? So even God's people are looking at this guy Ehud thinking, you, you're not good for many things, but I'll tell, tell you what, why don't you carry this present? Do that. So they don't reckon, even God's people, the Israelites, don't think Ehud's really that, that much. Certainly not a warrior, right? So they're like, you be the gift giver. And then Eglon and his guards don't feel threatened by this guy at all. Did you notice that in the story? So yeah, he's concealed his little dagger thing in his thigh. But even when he says, look, I want to, can I give a private word to the king? Is that all right? The guards retreat. The king's like, yeah, it's all right. It's fine. What can this guy do? Do you see? Right? Because the Israelites would have, you know, they'd have been subjected to this king. They'd have been the hostiles. You know, this, was, this could be a very threatening and dangerous security situation for the king. But it's like, well, that's okay. It's just Ehud. You know, you can, you can sort of make your way out the room. It's fine. I can handle it. So this guy Ehud doesn't appear very threatening at all. But that's the point. Left-handed, so he's probably got not much use of his right hand, not much stature, certainly not a warrior, and doesn't, doesn't look threatening in any way. But in he comes, and it's quite, uh, it's quite comical what happens next. He's brave, nevertheless. And he starts something here in his, assassina- his assassination of King Eglon, which then sort of prompts and starts a sort of wide-scale rebellion and eventually overthrowing um, Eglon and his army. Now, this is a little discipleship lesson here. Let's just pause for a moment and think about this. Um, no one thinks that Ehud would be the one to do this, which is why he's a perfect candidate for the Lord. He comes to this situation with his weaknesses. All I have is not a lot. And the Lord says, ah, yeah, perfect. That is what I need for this job. Someone who, in the eyes of the world, doesn't look like a candidate at all. But for me, says the Lord, perfect. That's perfect. That is exactly the kind of person I need to do a work of salvation. Now, this isn't just a an isolated case, you could think of loads, and I'm just going to give you two more. Moses is a great one to think about on this one. He's kind of an archetype. He's a type of Jesus in the way that he does this too. So he's 80, you know that? He's 80 years old when he's uh, sort of charged with the job of rescuing God's people out of Egypt. And one of the things he says to the Lord is, I can't speak properly. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue is what he says. You know, often people think he's got a stammer, he can't speak properly. The Lord like, that's okay. Perfect. What else? He's like, well, all I've got is a stick. I'm a shepherd. All I've got is a stick. Oh, that stick. Perfect. That's all we need. And we'll confound with that, with your stammer and your stick, we'll confound the then superpower 
of the civilized world. Egypt and Pharaoh. All we need is um, a stick and a stammer. Perfect. That's all I need, says the Lord. So it's a great example, isn't it, of the Lord taking weakness and using it for strength to achieve his purposes. Have you presented before the Lord your weaknesses? And said, Lord, you know, have you done that thing? I can't do that. And I'm not sure I'm any good at that. And no one will listen to me if I do that. And I haven't got this gift. And I haven't got that gift. Present them to the Lord. And he'll go, oh, that's, that is just the kind of thing I like to use for my purposes. Now, here's another big one for the book of Judges. This is an important one because throughout the book of Judges, one issue comes up over and over again. And it's usually what theologians summarize as the problem of a holy war, violence, that seems to be sanctioned by God. So throughout the book, you're going to see, if you read it, many times over that the Lord is upset and disappointed that he didn't, uh, that the people of God, that the Israelites, did not completely judge and destroy the inhabitants of Canaan as they go in to take possession of the land. They sort of partially did the job. And throughout the book of Judges, that comes up again and again as an issue. Now, let's just pause on this for a moment because it's important to think about these things. What are we going to make of that? Violence, bloodshed, um, a kind of ethnic cleansing. You could look at these kind of stories and go, what is going on? seems to be that the Lord wants a people to go and take possession of a land that's not theirs and make it theirs. And God seems to be asking them to do that. How is that good? There's many ways you could start to answer that, but I want you to think of one way and one very important way to think of this whole topic. And that is with Jericho. Jericho is the beginning of the campaign into Canaan. And what the Lord does there is he says, right, we're going to start this campaign like this. This is how you are going to take the land. Right? I'm going to tell you what to do, right? Here's the instructions. Get a decent pair of hiking boots. Uh, some musical instruments would be cool. Some trumpets. And that's it. That is all you need. And what I want you to do is there's a city down here called Jericho. That's going to be the first place we're going to go. And um, I want you to walk around it lots of times so that everyone sees you walking around it lots of times. Sing some praise. Let's get, this, let's get the worship band going. Let's get the trumpets going. Let's do all of that. And the Israelites must have been thinking, 
uh, when do we get the bows and arrows out? When do we get the swords out? When do we get the chariots out? You know, when does that happen? No, you don't need that. All you need, decent pair, of, just some footwear. Go down to Mountain Warehouse, get yourself a decent pair of boots, trumpets. And then what I want you to do is just march around the city like seven times. And at the end of it, just, you know, everyone get a trumpet and really go for it. And at that moment, the city collapses and they take Jericho. Now that is how they start the campaign into Canaan. Which means that it is um, completely preposterous. A ridiculous start to a military campaign. And the Lord's like, we're going to start this that way. So that, so that everyone can see, everyone, you and the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Ammonites, everyone can see that this isn't a big, strong nation with lots of military power and great military strategies coming and subduing a smaller nation which can't defend itself properly. Everyone will see that. that that's definitely not what's going on here because you've just got hiking boots and trumpets. It would be super obvious, it's going to be really obvious to the whole world that this here is ordained by the Lord, because only the Lord could do that. Only the Lord could do something so ridiculous in the eyes of the world. So the worry with judges and other texts like it is that in this modern day, people will come to a story like this or come to stories like the book of Judges and they'll say to themselves, ah, you know, governments even, dictators even, will use scriptures like this, to validate their wars and say, right, God has told me or God has told this government to go and take that nation in a holy war. And my answer to that, my answer, you know, the answer to, to someone who thinks in that way is, all right, okay, but what you've got to do first is get your hiking boots and your trumpets. And if you can start your campaign with hiking boots and trumpets, fair enough, I'll believe you. Because there is no way that you could go into a country and take it over and subdue it um, by any sort of normal man-made expected means if all you've got is hiking boots and trumpets. That's the challenge. That's the test. And it's the same thing. Do you see? It's the same thing over and over again. Ehud, unexpected, in the eyes of the world, no chance. No chance. There he is, a picture of God's salvation. Weakness. You're weak. Perfect. I'll use that because then the world will know, no shadow of a doubt, that this is me working. Moses, stammer and a stick. If you do it, then the whole world will know it is the Lord God of Israel who is acting on your behalf, right? And even with a situation like Canaan and the taking of the land, the Lord right at the very beginning, right at the outset is saying, 
if you do it like this with trumpets and hiking boots, then everyone will know undoubtedly that it is the Lord God, the living God of Israel, who is delivering you. Because it couldn't happen that way ordinarily. It couldn't happen. Which leads me to finally, all this points to, supremely, the most unexpected person and the most unexpected method that God decides to use for the salvation, not just of Israel, but the whole world. By the time we get to Jesus, no one expects him to do anything. Do you remember that scripture in Isaiah? There was nothing about his appearance that we should esteem him. He was despised and rejected. Do you remember that? You wouldn't look at Jesus and think, ah, yeah, there's a military commander, like a marine. Born in poverty, he learns carpentry, not combat. He doesn't train for war, ever. He teaches, he heals, he spends time with the sick and sinners. His elite squad are some fishermen, people who he's healed, former prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, guys like Zacchaeus. So when it comes to Jesus' victory, when he steps up to save the whole world, not only is he a very, very, very unlikely candidate to save the world, but his method it's not even hiking boots and trumpets. It's that his own death, not the death of someone else, his own death is going to achieve for God the salvation of the whole world. And even just in a small way, Rome, you ever thought about this? The, so if we ever think about Egypt as a superpower in the time of Moses, think of Rome, a superpower in the time of Jesus, unparalleled 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Rome is for Christ. He's turned the whole thing around. How? By his death, his death. This despised and rejected person who would, no one would look at and go, oh, wow, that one and his death transformed Rome, transformed the world. Still talking about it. So in every way, through all these stories, through the story of Ehud, Moses, Jericho, every way, and finally and supremely in the life of Jesus, God's like, I'm going to use something so unexpected so unlikely, so ridiculous and preposterous, in order that you'll be able to look on and go, surely this is only the work of the Lord. It could only be the work of God. Just like the centurion. Do you remember the centurion at the foot of the cross? When he sees that, 
he's like, surely this is the Son of God. So in that sense, Jesus is the most left-handed man, if you like, after Ehud, that you could ask for. And his method is the most left-handed of them all. And it achieves for God the greatest salvation, not just of Israel and for a time, but for the whole world and forever. Ehud is a setup. You see in this guy's life the kind of Messiah, the kind of person that the Lord God's going to work with to bring about a great salvation. And for us here today, present your weaknesses. This is our opportunity, isn't it, as a church, even as we face into Alpha this coming Wednesday and other things that we might be doing, present your weaknesses. Lord, I can't do this, can't do that, can't do these things. I'm no good at that, no good at these. Present those things, those very things to the Lord. And he's like, yeah, that is exactly what I can use to do great things. Let's pray. Lord God of glory, we pray and ask for you to um, minister to us so that we see and savor the greatness of Jesus, a candidate so unlikely and a method so preposterous that it surely is only your hand and your work. Lord, may we understand these things so deeply and so profoundly that it shapes us as your people that we might think in new and very different ways as to how we might reach this parish, the people we know, this city, and all of us, those people around us here. Lord, help us to cry out to you, to trust you, to take you at your word, to believe the very things that we're thinking about here this morning are true, and they're as true today as they always have been. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.